On January 16, 2002, a Garuda Indonesia 737-300 is on its way to Yogyakarta, but they never get there. What caused this flight to become a giant paperweight in the sky? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. Hey. Welcome to our new patron, Anne. Hello. Who I think may be a return listener. I don't know. The name I'm, sounds familiar. It yes. does sound familiar. Um, but you also might have just commented on something, which to be honest, there's been so much that we don't know. We, we are losing track and we are sorry, but we do appreciate it. Also, if you haven't gotten merch yet, first of all, if you're in Australia, sorry. They are. You ain't getting it. Uh, it yes. costs us like $60 to send it to you. So That might yeah. be on hold until a later date when the USPS figures out what they're going to do. Yeah, so it's not our fault. We're sorry, but we're not willing to spend $60 to send this tiny little bit of merch to you, which is not $60 worth of merch. <laughs> so, right. Nope. So. You will get it eventually as soon as USPS figures out their life. We promise. And if we don't, just remind us. Because... But we thank <laughs> that, you for your understanding. That happens, my dudes. That happens. Also, we're going to do listener up stories for December was the best gift you ever got. Yes. Just as a quick reminder. Also, just kind of an FYI to everyone, we are starting to record episodes in advance. And so, uh, tentatively, at least it's happening this episode, Miranda's reading findings and recommendations. That might just alleviate some pain off of Nick's plate. Also, it just, we might be ahead of time, so the episodes, like, if you ask a question or request something... It might be a month. It might be some time between when we actually record. All kind of messed up. Yeah, it's all strange. <laughs> we we planned this all out now. We try to plan it so that during the holiday season, we do not have to record for a couple weeks we can relax and not have to worry about it yes and then like if we have to edit we have it mostly done by then so check out the newsletter news new newsletter comes out on the first of every month it tells you what to look forward in the current month what you missed in the previous month uh some patron information in case you're ever curious about recovering on the patreon and then gives you a tidbit and it tells you what the listener stories are for the next month. Yeah. So there you go. Just so you all know, that's the, the dealio with that. That's and you the can thing. sign up for that on the website. Also, check out the merch page. Give your favorite person some Hard Landings merch for Christmas. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I make zero promises on shipping time because I know the supply chain is an absolute wreck. Right we have now. no control over any of that, FYI. That's not us. It doesn't ship from us. It doesn't any of that. Yeah. We so. just set up the store. It ships directly from whoever makes it. So that's it. Yeah. Just so y'all know, that's that's a thing. All right. With that all being said, I think that's all the housekeeping we have. So what are we covering today, Nick? Today we are covering Garuda Indonesian. Flight 421. Thank you to Rich. Thanks, Rich. For recommending this episode. Boop, boop. He just recommended another one recently, didn't he? I don't know. I don't remember. He I know thought... that we did another one of his recently, and he was like, oh, I did recommend that. That's right. That was a long time ago. Well, like, <laughs> I think he asked about upcoming stuff he recommended. Yes, yeah. I, don't... I gave him his list. Yeah, but I don't, That's right. That's I don't right. think uh, he gave it. Uh, he might have. I don't know. So there. Thanks, Rich. Thanks, Rich. 
This accident occurred on January 16th of 2002. This was a Boeing 737-300, so it's the OG series, kind of. It's not the, the classic or- series. Yes, it's the classic series of 737. It's not the original, because the originals are the 100 and the 200. But This one had a tail number of Papa Kilo-Golf Whiskey Alpha. This was a flight from Selparang in Ampanan in Indonesia to Yogyakarta on the island of Java. Java, Indonesia. Indonesia. The captain for today's flight is Abdul Rozak. He was 44 years old. At the time, he had 14,020 hours total, of which 5,086 hours were on the 737. So he's pretty experienced in the 737. Oh, good. You did find those numbers. Just for him. Oh, the first officer is Harry Gunawan. He had 7,137 hours total, in which I don't know how many were on the 737. He was type rated, but we don't know how many hours he had on the 737. It wasn't in the report, and I couldn't find it anywhere. So, that's going to be what it's going to be. This flight departed Ampanan at 3.32 p.m. with 54 passengers and 6 crew. The departure was in clear weather, but the flight crew were expecting to fly into some rain as they neared Yogyakarta. At 4.08 p.m., the air traffic controller instructed the flight to descend from 31,000 feet down to 28,000 feet. The flight crew could see some large cumulonimbus clouds ahead of them just before the descent. Those are the big puffy storm clouds. Yeah, that's the big puffy thunderstorm clouds that you think of when you think of a thunderstorm. It that's, looks like, that's a no good. Yeah, it's got a big, big top to it. 4.13 p.m., the flight was cleared to descend further and began doing so. The flight crew looked at their weather radar in the cockpit, and saw that there were some severe weather ahead, but they noted that there was an area of lighter weather a little to the left of their planned flight path, appearing almost as an alley in their radar. They agreed that this looked to be the better flight path through the storm. They requested a heading change to 300 degrees from the air traffic controller to avoid the weather, and the air traffic controller confirmed and told the flight crew to then fly direct to an NTB after clearing the weather to set up for an approach to Yogyakarta. The flight then took on the heading of 300 degrees. They then entered the clouds at 23,000 feet. They reduced their airspeed to 280 knots, turned on the fasten seatbelt sign, switched the engine ignition to flight mode, and turned on the anti-ice to prepare for some turbulence and rain. This is all relatively standard procedure when you fly into bad weather. Nothing totally out of the norm. The captain then requested to descend to flight level 190 from the air traffic controller, and was cleared to do so. Almost immediately after entering the dark and looming clouds, the aircraft began experiencing severe turbulence and heavy precipitation. Suddenly, some of their electrical systems stopped working. And a few moments later, the crew noted that both engines seemed to be simultaneously shutting down, or, quote, flaming out, end quote. That is a term in aviation. Or shutting down, and it does typically involve also flames. But the cabin power then went out, and the aircraft was now gliding without engine power down through the storm. The crew immediately attempted to restart the engines twice, with both attempts taking several minutes, but both attempts failed in the end. They then attempted to start the APU for electrical power, but the attempt failed, and worse yet, the rest of the electrical system failed and shut down as they were trying to start the APU leaving them with just their bare minimum standby instruments. For those of you, as in I think there's one person who has asked us in a previous dual engine flameout, if there is a rat, the Boeing 737 is not, nor has it ever been equipped with a rat yep. or a ram air turbine. Ram air turbine. This is a 
little tiny windmill that pops out into the airstream of, along the airplane's to fuselage. basic energy, yeah. Yes, to just generate a little electricity for the airplane. But nope, they are not equipped with this. Question. Yep. Don't know why this popped in my head, mm-hmm. but can they turn on the APU to get some electrical power? They tried. They just that's, tried. That's what cut the rest of the electrical power. Oh, okay. Everything shut down when they tried to start the APU. So, that's bad. They were, at that time, they were losing about 1,000 feet every 15 seconds. Ooh. Which is pretty insane. That's like, if you've ever been on, like, the Tower of Doom type ride, where, like, it just drops. Yeah. That's, like, ten times worse. They still are moving forward, but they are also dropping very quickly. Eh, paperweight. You would definitely be able to feel it, though. Yes. But they still have quite a bit of forward momentum, FYI. The flight crew and passengers began praying to get out of the situation alive. The airplane kept dropping towards the ground until it finally dropped out of the clouds at about 8,000 feet. The flight crew then began trying to make it to an airport, but they quickly realized that the nearest airport was behind them and out of range. They then began looking for a safe place to land away from an airport. The captain then spotted the Banguan Solo River and decided that the safest option would be to ditch in that river. As they approached that river at about 3,000 feet, they noticed that there was a bridge with concrete pillars underneath across that river that was in their way, and they would not be able to safely pass over or underneath it. Dun, dun, dun. The captain quickly decided to make a 360-degree turn to the left to descend and land on the river sooner, so land along before that bridge. Both flight crew turned hard to the left as they were having to turn the airplane manually because there was no hydraulics. Oh, yeah. And that's hard. Very hard. It's worse than trying to turn a car with no power steering. Like, it is... And if you've ever tried to do that, it's freaking hard. Yeah. This is heavy. So both flight crew are having to put in a very heavy input to the left to turn the airplane. And this is the main reason that this airplane doesn't need a ram air turbine because this airplane can still be flown without hydraulics. Just, it's not fun. Yeah. To this day, the 737 is still this way. It can be flown without hydraulics, and it's not fun. But it can be done. So no ram air turbine for them. No ram air turbine for you. That's right. No caps. No No caps. caps. (laughs) No soup for you. No rats for you. They went beyond the normal safe bank angle, but they did so in order to make the landing. So they did a very heavy bank to the left on purpose. As they leveled back out to approach the river, the first officer noted a bridge ahead, another bridge, and the captain asked for the altitude. The first officer told the captain that they were currently at 250 feet. The captain estimated that the bridge ahead of them was at 80 feet, so they should clear. Barely. (sighs) There was another bridge ahead of that one, so they would have to land between those two bridges in the river. That's like the worst kind of parallel parking. Yeah, right? <laughs> no kidding. That's like, that's like trying to parallel park a car like with two semis. On either side. On either side. Yep. And also you don't have power steering. Yep. And also you don't have mirrors. And no assist. No parking <laughs> assists. It's just bad. It's bad. They narrowly cleared that first bridge and then the captain yelled back to the flight attendants to brace for landing. The cabin crew began yelling to the passengers to brace. The flight crew opted to land with no flaps and no landing gear. The captain requested the speed, and the first officer reported that they were at 170 knots, which is fast, but he felt that this would be safe enough. 
Did they have a reason to not have... I mean, I understand why not having the landing gear, but was there a specific reason not to have flaps? Was it just so they didn't get too slow too fast? It's part of it, and... Those take time to extend. They do take time to extend, and they don't have great manual control over that anyway. Oh, that's right, because they don't have hydraulics. Okay. So, yeah, that's another thing. Can those be cable-driven? I don't think they are. Oh. And so, so basically, Boeing's like, you don't get a Ram Air Turbine. You don't get all of these hydraulics. Hopefully, you can steer. Bye. Good luck. Have fun. Good luck. Parallel parking in midair. So no matter what, even even so, even if they had flaps, there's the potential that when they hit the ground, because the option was basically rice paddies, where they were pretty much guaranteed to hit and break up, or this river, which is still a lot of water, and they could still hit and break up. Because at this point in time... There's been, there was still no, no major accident of a commercial aircraft that ditched successfully. That ditched successfully. With no deaths. With no deaths in the water. It's basically considered to be impossible. And spoiler, that will remain true after this. Yeah. We didn't know that it was really actually possible with a full size airliner until, you know, the Hudson. 1549. Yep, yeah. The Hudson. So the aircraft impacted hard and the, at the rear of the fuselage first. The rear of the fuselage was compromised at that time. The engines then bent away from the pylons, but remained attached to the airplane. Huh. The airplane came to a stop in the river, and the cabin crew began evacuating the cabin. The water was shallow, and the passengers were able to wade directly to shore. It was about waist height, basically. So they were able to just get out and walk. Yeah. (laughs) It's not a very deep river. Not at all. Everybody evacuated, and the captain was the last person off the plane. As it should be. That said, one... Of the flight attendants, one of the cabin crew, at the rear of the plane, suffered serious injuries and passed a short time later from their injuries. I believe on sight. Like, passed. Twelve passengers and one crew were seriously injured, and 42 passengers and four crew had minor or no injuries at all. In all, one perished, but all other 59 survived. So this was still pretty darn close. This was pretty good. A survival no, accident. So yeah, this was still no quite the harrowing event. This was still very... At the time, this was seen as pretty incredible, to be honest. They ditched in water and managed to have all but one survive. That's pretty crazy. And most uninjured. So that's very good. Very good on them. Yeah. And very interesting, also. Yes. Okay. This investigation was performed by the Indonesian National Transportation Safety Committee, or the NTSC. NTSC. Both black boxes were recovered from the wreckage and were transported to the AAIB in Farnborough, United Kingdom. What? So I, I, I had the uh, same reaction of, why? Why didn't they just why? send them to the United States? Okay, let's reevaluate. This happened in January of 2002. Uh, they were busy. We were still worried about the whole 9-11 thing. God. Well, and then November of 2001, uh, American Airlines crashed into right. Queens. So it's just a bad time for they the They were United like, States. you know what? We don't got... Send it somewhere else. We don't have the bandwidth. We can't. We can't. Figure now, it out. I speculate that's what happened. I don't know for sure, but I think it's a pretty good guess. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Both black boxes were able to be read out, although the reading stopped about a minute and a half after entering the storm. But we'll come back to that later. This particular Boeing 737 was equipped with CFM 56 engines, and CFM is the joint-owned company between the American company General Electric and the French company Safran Aircraft Engines. Anyway, 
Does the occurrence of a dual CFM 56 engine failure in a heavy storm sound familiar at all? On a 737-300. It should, because we covered a previous incident of this, and I say incident because this was not an accident. Taka Flight 110, which we covered in episode 92 a few months ago, had the same thing happen in 1988. And that's the one that landed on the levee, right? Yep. Got it. Dual engine failure and a heavy storm. So 14 years earlier? Yes. Math. Math. I can sometimes do it. (laughs) No guarantees. But you may recall that CFM redesigned the engines after that incident. I specifically said, quote, The shape of the engine nose cone and the spacing of the fan blades were changed to better deflect hail, end quote. So why did these engines fail now? An analysis of the engine showed nothing was wrong with them. They were working as designed and certified. So let's go review some of that flight data recorder data, shall we? This data, which we have pictures of on our website, shows that fuel consumption increases once they enter the storm. But the engine speeds don't increase. So the engines are getting more fuel, but they aren't increasing in power. Correct. Correct. So it choked the engine. Well, what does this translate to exactly? It means that the engines are having to work harder because of the increased water in the engines. Hmm. But it still doesn't explain why they flamed out. It's just weird. The redesigned engines were redesigned for the purpose of flying through storms. Well, we looked at one black box. Let's look at the other, or rather listen to it. Or try to. Yes, the CBR data was able to be extracted in full, but the recording itself was revealing in quality. Prior to flying through the storm, sound quality was good. Audible, as you would expect. But once the flight entered the storm, the CBR was almost useless because it was so f***ing loud. We here edit our own podcast almost entirely on our own until recently. And we know how to do some noise filtering. It's pretty easy to filter out noise most of the time. You take a section of relative silence, which still contains the noise, and you can program such that the inverse of that sound is entered and will negate or remove the noise. That's how you guys don't hear our fan or normal room noise most of the time. But that process didn't work here because of the sheer volume. It was actually described in the report as a tremendous volume. The other issue with this process, or even a high-pass filter which would filter out lower frequencies, was that the noise was the same frequency as the pilot's male voices. Oh, that doesn't work. Nope. You can't hear crap then. Nope. Nope. But the noise in the cockpit from the precipitation was so loud and thunderous, you almost couldn't hear anything at all. Almost. A few seconds before the CVR cut out from power loss, you could hear one thing above the noise. Terrain. Terrain. Pull up. The weirder thing about that... When they heard it, they were at 18,000 feet. Okay, here's the weird thing. We just talked about how the GPWS doesn't malfunction because it uses the radio altimeter. Uh So now I'm confused. (laughs) It worked, actually. So to recap how the system works, in case you haven't listened to like the past three episodes or something, it warns the crew when the radio altimeter detects terrain below. How does the radio altimeter work? It's like echolocation for a bat or a dolphin. It sends out a signal and times how long it takes to bounce off the ground and come back, extrapolating from that how far away the ground is. What could be causing the radio altimeter to sense terrain? The answer comes from plot twist. The nose cone? Wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) The nose cone, otherwise known as the nose radome. 
the painting coating had been eroded completely on the front of the cone, making a one-foot circle of exposed metal. And there were numerous circular dents. You can see such pictures on our website. Was that from the storm? That was from the hail. Yep. Holy shit. The hail was so dense that the radio altimeter thought it was the ground. Yep. (laughs) So the radio altimeter was actually working just fine. It was doing exactly what it was supposed to do. It didn't malfunction. There was just way too much stuff in the air around them. The next question from several people are going to be, well, why were they in a storm that was so bad? We'll get I'm there. not getting to that for a minute, so That's... I will get there. Okay, I'm Hold just saying, a lot of our listeners are going to be like, but wait a minute. You're telling me that it was so bad that the, the GPWS thought they were near terrain. But wait, there's more. Yeah, so we're still on the question of why the heck did the engines stop working? Because they were supposed to be able to intake hail now. Right. So... What are the new specs of the engines, you might ask? It, they can now handle 10 grams of hail per cubic meter of air. Somehow, I'm still unclear on how this exactly works, but somehow, investigators use the volume of the CVR compared to Taka Flight 110, as well as the engine performance data and the GPWS phenomenon, and garnered that the estimated precipitation in the accident storm was 18 grams per cubic meter, almost double what the engine is rated for, and pretty much more than anything ever recorded. There was only one other instance of higher, and it was in a 727. I think. Something like that. That is just completely ugly. Yeah. So, let's run a little engine test, shall we? 10 grams of hail per cubic meter of air. Everything's great. Working as it should. No problems here. 18 grams per cubic meter, engine whines, whines, and flames out. Yep. That's fun. So that answers the first question of what happened to the engines. But there are a few more questions, like why did they fly into the storm, as Miranda so uh, predictably asked. Is that... You're welcome. There it is! (laughs) Upon interviewing the captain... They learned that the crew saw a path through the storm on their onboard weather radar, an alley of green where they could fly safely around or through the red. Or so they thought. Actual weather data shows that the part they flew through was actually the worst of the storm, which the crew found out later, when their weather radar suddenly turned to solid red. But how could that be? Was the weather radar on board faulty? Investigators consulted with a radar expert, where they learned of a phenomenon called radar shadowing, or attenuation. Radar works by sending an electromagnetic signal out, and how much of the signal comes back and how long it takes to come back shows how much and how far the weather is. But if the storm is super bad, the radar signal won't bounce back to the weather station, or in this case, the plane. The signal bounces around inside of the storm off of the hail but stays in the storm and dissipates, never making it back to the radar system, which makes the radar think that the skies are clear ahead. Once you fly into the storm, however, you are suddenly surrounded by your own electromagnetic radar signals, and the radar turns solid red. Great. So what they thought was green and clear, good to go. No. No. Not good to go. Not good to go. The worst, actually. Last question, which Miranda hasn't asked. Why didn't the crew have any power? Well, I figured it has something to do with lightning. No. Or the no. fact that the engines flamed out. No. Well, I mean, Taka still had some power. They had no engines, but they had power because they had an APU. Yeah, so why didn't the APU work? That's the big question. 
We know from other dual engine flameouts that the APU is vital in being able to have any form of operation. So the answer for this actually came from interviewing the captain. He just so happened to look at one reading on his cockpit panel that I wouldn't have thought to look at, and he remembered exactly what it said. He said that the battery was reading a little low, reading as 22 volts instead of its fully charged 24 volts. Okay, so what? It's 2 volts, whatever, right? I mean, an aging battery will read a little bit low, right? Nothing big. Did that 2-volt disparity really contribute to this? Investigators decided to run another engine test. They decided to test restarting the engines under the precipitation circumstances while monitoring the battery level. This is just with a new battery. This wasn't with the accident battery. Start the battery at 22 volts. Load it for 30 seconds per the engine restart procedure, followed by 90 seconds with the standby bus and engine igniters. Repeat that for a second restart attempt, and then start the APU. The first ignition drained the battery to 20 volts. Okay, not great. After the second attempt, the battery depleted instantly to 12 volts. And it's useless of, at anything under 18 volts. So they didn't even try restarting the APU. Yeah. So as soon as they flipped the, the APU switch, it just killed whatever power was no, left in that battery. No, it wasn't even that. Oh, I know. But in the airplane, when they flipped the APU switch, it killed whatever power they had left in the cockpit. Anything Boom. and everything. Gone. Four weeks. After the accident, the battery was fished out of the river, finally. The investigators realized that the captain was right. The thermostat sensor mounting between cells 11 and 12 was severely corroded, and the high temperature sensor was completely missing. The corrosion was not caused by the river water, according to experts, and the sensor was not detached due to impact. But this is not the biggest issue. Of most note, though, was cell 12, the newest cell on the battery. Lovely. It had very little electrolyte left, but still had a normal supply of potassium hydroxide, which meant that the electrolyte had been spewing through the vent valve and out of the battery. This accounted for the 12-volt disparity in the first place, because it couldn't hold the same capacity. The electrolyte will spew from the battery from high temperature and overcharging, which happens when the thermostat sensor's missing. Lovely. So maybe not have that missing? Yeah. That'd, that'd be a be good thing, great. usually. And that's all I got. Those are the three questions. Those are my three answers. Yeah, that pretty much sums up everything that actually happened here, and that's all the important stuff. But the, note that they didn't place any blame in particular on anybody. Well, because it really was a, a mixture of everything. It was a mixture of everything, and it wasn't... There was no pilot error here. Put that in, out there right now. As the pilots did nothing wrong. Actually, they did a great job. And they got a lot of honor for that, actually. But... Uh, they got thanked by the president. Yeah, of Indonesia. Yeah. Now, I will say, nor most reports would try to go in more into the maintenance techniques regarding the battery, and they didn't do that a whole lot. So... That's okay. That's okay. We're going to take a big break, and we'll come back with some findings, the probable cause, and the conclusions. Break, break! When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The holiday season is here. Have you started your shopping yet? If not, don't worry. We got a cool place for you to check out to buy unique gifts for your family and friends. Check out Wild Gallery. They're a small gallery based in Austin, Texas that sells original Native American art. Their art is a great way to decorate your place or to give as a great holiday gift to your friends and family. This is a great way to support a small business and give your loved ones something different for the holidays. Check out Wild Gallery at wild.gallery. That's whiskey, Yankee, Lima, Delta, dot gallery, where you can make an appointment to see art in person, learn more about the artist, and of course, shop. Again, check out Wild Gallery at wild.gallery today. And we back. And your girl's going to cover some of everything else in the episode. She was aware of this accident. She knows everything that happened in this FYI. I do, because it was a Air Disasters episode that I watched before they did. So, Well, it was one of the first ones that we ever watched. Yeah, it was before we started the podcast or anything. So she watched this. She knows about it. Well, no, well, the, the one I watched with you, guys, I don't think it was this one. It was, I don't know. Anyway. No, I don't think so. Okay. Findings. The flight data recorder and the cockpit voice recorder, and the engines, uh, the examination thereof, confirmed that both engines flamed out while the aircraft was passing 18,500 feet and entered severe cumulonimbus clouds with turbulence and heavy rain and hail, was due to excessive water-slash-hail ingestion on the engines, which was way beyond the engine certified capabilities. Is that what it said? No, I, I juiced it up a little bit. Oh, okay. <laughs> It, it was Fair well enough. beyond the capabilities of the engines. Fair enough. The level of electrolyte in one of the cells, i.e. number 12, of the battery had found lower than others. This lower level cell caused an insufficient current shortage. It was found that the thermostat sensor mounting at the linkage between cells 11 and 12 was severely corroded and the sensor was missing. The corrosion happened sometime before the accident and was not caused by the submersion in the river. The missing sensor was due to corrosion and not by uh, mechanical impact, is what they put. Okay. Yeah, it didn't fall off during the water impact, no. during the ditching. No. Which I feel like it would have taken a lot, and also the APU stopped working, wasn't working, yeah. before they hit the river, so. Well, but that was more... About the cell not having all of it, the electrolyte, the sensor itself missing led to that. Right. Right. But, Which, it but that had to basically occur before yeah. they hit the river anyway. So, anyway. Yep. Okay, going on. The engine relay attempts were unsuccessful since they were executed while the aircraft was still encountering heavy precipitation and the combustion chamber was thermodynamically insufficient. The effort was followed by a failed APU start attempt, resulting in total electrical power loss in the aircraft, which caused the inability to open the APU door. The APU electrical components and battery tests confirmed that the complete power loss following the APU attempt start was due to battery inability to maintain sufficient power. It was due to inadequacy in the battery maintenance procedures. It was probable that the flight path of the aircraft during weather detour when flying into the gap went toward radar shadow caused by an excessive amount of active weather cells in the area. So that's what we talked about, the weather, the shadowing on yep. the radar or, where they couldn't tell. Or attenuation, if you yes, want to be real fancy. Yes, that. That, God. What? <laughs> 
the clearer area was inside the military restricted area, which could be entered in certain situations by obtaining permission, which should be established between the relevant authorities. We didn't really talk about that, but. I didn't think it relevant. No. It wasn't really relevant. But no. they put it as a finding, like, hey, you can't enter military space without permission, which, yes, that's true. Yes, thanks. Because then you have things like um, missiles shooting you down. But they, yeah. they they also lost uh, radio contact because they didn't have any, any electricity. So they couldn't have been, even been contacted. And then it would have been real bad. But I don't think they'd sent out fire fighter planes in the middle of a giant storm. But I don't know. Who no. knows? The flight crew did successfully force land the aircraft on the river despite experiencing multiple ener- emergency situations, loss of thrust on both engines, and complete loss of all electrical, including battery. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> One cabin crew member was fatally injured on uh, upon forced landing as a result of the breakoff of the lower structure, including both rear laboratories which were lost by the river stream yeah there was literally a hole in the rear of the fuselage like big hole the bottom rear of the fuselage just fell out and the flight attendant was sitting in the rear right yes flight attendant seat the local survival rescue team had arrived a couple hours after the aircraft ditched in the river of the bangawan solo river which i mean what else can you do right if they had no electrical that means their transponder probably wasn't working either nope Nope. so it was like how would anyone know that this plane had crashed in general the fact that they got there a couple hours later is kind of awesome because yeah well and there's no fire right but there was civilization around well they landed by rice paddies too it wasn't even like they weren't landing by a specific town i'm sure there was people relatively close but not Right next to them. Or yeah, anything. there were people. I mean, there were bridges and stuff. So people probably probably saw the airplane. And were like, "What the heck?" <laughs> probably with a few more expletives thrown in there. Yeah, probably. Uh, okay, so the last one's kind of weird, but I'll, I'll put it in there anyway because I think it's interesting. Air sp- aircraft speed of two hundred ninety to two hundred ninety-five knots was above the recommended turbulence penetration speed of two hundred eighty knots. Yes. Which, I mean, they flew through a giant storm, so, you know, I don't think they would really focus on their airspeed at that point. <laughs> there wasn't much they could do. All right. That was it for the findings. Woohoo! Nice, sweet, short. Yay! Uh, probable cause. As Yay. always, verbatim from the report. Probable cause. The NTSC determines that the probable causes of the accident were the combination of, one, the aircraft had entered severe hail and rain during weather avoidance, which subsequently caused both engines to flame out. Two, two attempts of the engine relight failed because the aircraft was still in the precipitation beyond the engine's certified capabilities. And three, during the second attempt to relight the aircraft suffered and uh, suffered a run out of electrical power. I realize this is a translator report, but translator reports don't have any articles and it makes it very hard to read. Okay. Yes. And then there's literally the same amount of recommendations as there were findings. Excellent. So we're just going to go through those. Pretty much a one for one. (laughs) Yeah. Question. Yeah. Do you read the NTSB recommendations? I didn't realize there were. Are they at the end? I have it. She got it. Okay. Then Chris, you'll read those after I'm done with these. Excellent. All right. Recommendations. Regulatory body aircraft and engine manufacturer to provide a target airspeed in the dual engine restart procedures, which I'm pretty sure was done. I'm pretty sure you have to be at a certain airspeed for your engines to relight 
if if I'm not mistaken. Yes, and they were above that airspeed actually both times they tried. They had plenty of airspeed. That was never really the problem. No, but it's it's kind of one of their like, hey, just so you know. Yes. Regulatory body and weather radar manufacturer to work on the airborne weather radar system to better identify the level of the adverse weather, particularly the characteristic of the present generation of airborne weather radar, which means just make it better so there's not shadow radaring, which I don't know if they ever really were able to fix, but... We have satellite weather now. Yeah, that's true. So it's a little different. Yes. And I'm sure they got trained on this afterward. Like, hey, if there's a big giant storm in the area, just so you know, this can happen. Just this, this happens. Yes. Uh, Garuda did change their training such that their pilots were now better equipped to fly in such conditions. Yeah. They knew... That, oh, there's this spot of green and a sea of red, you know. That... That's probably not green. That's probably red. That's probably, yeah. like, black. <laughs> yeah. Pretty much. Regulatory body and engine manufacturer to provide procedures on how to improve their engines, water slash hail, and just-in capability if adverse weather cannot be avoided, which means just increasing the throttle setting when entering the weather, etc. Which usually... Nowadays, like we said, there's satellite weather, so you can usually go around the weather. But it's like the Delta Airlines that landed here that went through that giant storm in Kansas. And they were like, wow. And then they realized you went through it even though you weren't supposed yeah. to. I think that was a – I don't know if it was a Delta or was a U.S. Delta, Air, I think it was a U.S. Airways. Was it? No, because it happened a few years ago. Maybe it, it wasn't. Was, maybe it was Delta. It might have. It could have been a. To be fair, I don't remember the airline. It could be a different airline completely. But it, it landed here in Denver, and everyone was like, "Oh my gosh, you're such a hero!" And then they realized that the pilot could have just gone around it, and they were like, "Really, dude? <laughs> what the heck?" Everybody else went around. They didn't. In this case, they. I mean, the weather radar was just. It was the way that the weather radar worked. These days, you have satellite weather data, yeah. which is a lot more accurate than that radar was, uh, to. Clear the record. It was Delta Airlines okay. flight 1889. Okay, okay, there we go. Yeah, it was See, Delta. it was Delta. Yeah. Okay. It landed cool. on a Friday night for all who care. Cool, cool, cool. <laughs> the aircraft manufacturers should provide engine cowl and wing anti-ice bleed closing procedure prior to the in-flight engine restart. Okay. I don't know how that affected the engine restart, but... I have a suspicion what it means by that. So, after Taka flight 110... CFM added additional bleed doors from the engine. So oh, that, to get the water out. And if yeah. those weren't open and they were trying to reignite the engine, the engine might have just been full of water. Yep. Well, that, this is just basically to have a thing to where they have more openings to get the water out. Yeah. Got it, got it, got it. Or tell the pilots to open the doors. Yeah. You need to open the doors to get the water out of the engine. <laughs> yes. The aircraft and engine manufacturer should provide procedures for in-flight engine relight and precipitation, which is kind of what we just said. Like, what should you do if you have to relight an engine while you're in a rainstorm or whatever? Or what could be causing your engines to flame out, I guess. Because my assumption would be that the pilots didn't realize how much water they were taking into the engines. Probably not. So they probably didn't know that, hey, we should probably get the water out of the engines so the engines can restart. Probably a good idea. So, even just training pilots to be like, hey, this can happen. Yes. Just so you're aware. Just by the way. Just to by the way. Okay, there's a abbreviations here I don't know, so this will be fun. Yay. Uh, hold. Chrissy's going to look them up for me. Okay, BMG. 
<laughs> is that not in there? My guess is a, a regulatory body of some kind, but... Oh, hold on. What is the context? Please read it. Okay. BMG to provide SIGMET to airmen to assist their decision in flight it's when expecting en route adverse weather. Bali something or other, because they were talking to Bali ATC. Oh. Is it ground? Bali ground? No. I don't know what the MG are for, but it's got to be Bali something. It's also Bloomington. <laughs> Great! Except that's not in Indonesia. Bali Meteorology and Geophysics Agency. There we go. Okay. <laughs> that there makes a lot more sense. <laughs> Meteorology weather. Yes, got it. Yep. So it would be Doesn't like for our National Oceanic and it... Conservation Aerospace Administration. NOAA. NOAA. Okay. Yep. In the U.S. Sorry. Trying to draw parallels. That's okay. We. I, I understand. I got it. You B- got it. You got it. BMG to consider the provision of ground-based weather radar, which I'm sure they have now. So we have ground-based weather radar. It might not be Bali. It might be Badan. There's a lot. I, I Either or. I don't know. They were talking to Bali. Relevant authorities to emphasize the coordination between civilian and military controllers. Again, the whole thing with they were in a military area, which wasn't really a factor, but... It's that's important too, as we said in a previous episode. The 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 missile strike, yes. that was an accident. Yeah. Rearrangement of both international and national procedures of the air transportation safety regulation should be considered after this accident, where limited information was provided. No early warning on ad, on ad, adverse weather of an active CB along the track. So the, apparently they had no idea this weather was like a thing. Which, uh, you, they do, you get that, like, in the ATIS information now. At least in the United States. So. Yes. Training the crew for better reading of the planes radar and other relevant subjects slash topics in connection with extreme weather conditions for air transportation safety. Which we brought up earlier, you know, make sure pilots understand and know how that works. The coordination and consolidation of the operational ground support, the ACC slash ATC and meteorological offices should be reviewed for proper management of air transportation safety. So probably just, you know, make sure they're working together to make sure pilots are prepared for what they're heading into. And that's all for the reports. Well, pretty straightforward, to (laughs) be honest. I mean, honestly, good recommendations, because it's like, this was a short episode, but all of this was still pretty pertinent. So between the satellite radar stuff and the uh, ground radar and all of these... Things that came along, really, this is a lot less of an issue Yeah. with modern aircraft. So, the United States National Transportation Safety Board, also known as the NTSB, became involved because they are... Like they do. Yeah. Well, I mean, as most of the United States does, we like to stick our nose in everyone's business. Well, uh, this is but an also airplane we... manufactured in yes. the United States, so they have the right. So... Not only was the airplane manufactured in the United States, but specific, specifically the engine was a joint venture between France and the United States. That too. Right. So the NTSB made a couple of recommendations to the Federal Aviation Administration, as they are wont to do. They recommended completing a review of the current turbofan engine certification standards for rain and hail ingestion. They did this with Taka, and now they're doing it again. I mean... I mean, it was even more ingestion than Taka was, right? So if you're talking about, clearly there's the ability for the engines to have more 
of an intake than they thought. Well, and if necessary, revise the standards in consideration of recent service experience and atmospheric data. I'm reading between the lines here. And I think what they mean to say is in light of climate change affecting severe weather throughout the world, this could produce more severe hailstorms. Therefore, airplane engines need to step it up accordingly. Yeah, I mean, weather changes. It had been 14 years since this last happened, so they probably got more recent weather data that shows more severe storms and needing to adapt accordingly. The NTSB also recommended to the FAA that they require all turbofan engines and turbofan-powered aircraft manufacturers working with operators of such aircraft to develop effective operational strategies and related guidance materials to minimize the chance of a dual-engine power loss. The FAA should then verify that these strategies and guidance materials are incorporated into operating manuals and training programs in a timely fashion. So, I mean, really, truly working with airlines so that their pilots are trained how to avoid these situations, but also what to do once in them. Yes. For sure. As is, I mean, that makes sense. Yep. Yeah. Cool. I don't know that they could have done any better, to be honest, though. Not with what they had. I mean, it was good that they were able to ditch and that only one person, I mean, it sucks that one person had to lose their life, right? But they only lost one person. So I think that's a win based on what they were dealing with. Well, and I think Boeing counted both this and Taka as, in all reality, a win because the airplane did what it was designed to do both times. Yeah. Which was make it survivable. And it was, for the most part. To the best of my knowledge, the CFM-56 engine had never had this issue ever again. Yeah, I mean, we haven't heard about it. Definitely not common. So No further engine modifications were recommended. So there. Yes. Garuda Airlines Flight 421. Thanks so much for listening, as always. And uh, sorry for the short episode, but well, I, think it, I think it was a good one to cover. Yeah. yeah. You know. Thanks to all our patrons. You guys are awesome. If you want to become a patron or see what it takes to become a patron, there is a Patreon info tab on our website. And there's also like Miranda's in the mini episodes so you can see what else you can get with your Patreon uh, patronage. And you can also just look us up on Patreon. If you look up Hard Landings Podcast, we pull right up. Uh, and that's up to you. You don't have to. We do have, uh, as we keep saying over and over, hundreds of hours of con- extra content besides episodes on there. So, yes. Thank do. you anyway for listening. If you enjoyed the show, we love hearing your feedback and comments. It makes us happy. We're like, thank you so much. We will be relying on that a little more in the future as we develop some new things. Potentially. That you may or may not have already known about Seen by, by now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so uh, keep an eye out for that. Anyway, thank you so much for listening and ke- have a safe and healthy week. And we'll catch you all next week. Keep, keep your airspeed speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by all three of us. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.